0: you, thank you. Mark chapter 10 is where we are today. We are working our way right through Mark's gospel and we find ourselves in chapter 10 verse 32. Now I have to confess that I have been drawn to these next few stories like a hungry mule to a turnip green patch. As a matter of fact, um, I studied these stories Till about Tuesday, planning just to skip this passage and get to a story, which is also known as what? It's a pericope, you're right. And I've told you, I'm a pericope preacher. I'm just naturally drawn to them. That's my wheelhouse for uh, literature. But nonetheless, uh, about, I guess it was about Wednesday morning, the Lord just drew a line in the sand, wouldn't let me cross it. So I had to go back to 32. And I think part of the reason is uh, these verses are very weighty, they're very serious, but the, the key verse in all of Mark's gospel, if you were in seminary, you would have to know this. I promise you this would be on your midterm. The key verse in Mark's gospel is verse 45 of chapter 10. Uh, there's enough uh, theology tucked away in verse 45 for us to spend uh, an entire message on verse 45. And we are not going to do it justice today as we include it in the larger scope of this entire passage from 32 to the end of the chapter. So let's begin in verse number 32. The Bible says uh, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignation with James and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that... Those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There are few things that is more detrimental to spirituality than our inbred tendency to be selfish. Selfishness for a believer is equivalent to kryptonite for the man of steel. It will just drain us of our spiritual power. It will drain us of our influence. It will drain the joy of the Lord out of our life. It is our arch enemy. Greatest enemy to our spirituality, healthy spirituality, will never come from without, but it comes from within. I think it's the reason today why so few folk, get to that place in life where they really achieve consistency in their walk with the Lord. It has to do with this innate desire to have things our way. And by the way, it should make sense because you know why it is that we don't pursue Christ like we ought to. And you know why it is why folk don't do what they know they should do. And bottom line is because we do what we want to do. And most of the time, what we want to do stands in contrast or in conflict with what the gospel commands us to do. So, self-promotion, self promotion, um, self seeking, and folk who are just generally selfish are their own worst enemy. And it's really not becoming of disciples at all. So I want to speak to you today on this subject. Self-rising is for dough, not for disciples. I mean, self-rising flour make a pretty good biscuit. But self-rising makes for a horrible believer. It's just unbecoming And it really is the enemy to our spirituality and to our effectiveness as members of the kingdom of God. Now here's the bottom line. Isaiah said years ago, there are none who seek after the Lord. We have all gone astray. Whether you are a child of God or not, there is that that innate portion of you that says, it's all about me where the gospel says, no, it's not. You are no longer on the throne. In stark contrast to that, Jesus comes along in Sermon on the Mountain, puts it down in a nutshell when he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these other things that we seem to be sacrificing our spirituality for will be added to us almost automatically. And things that he was talking about were things like food and and shelter, and clothing, the basic necessities of life. So let's look at this passage today because, man, here's a passage where where self-centeredness and self-promotion and self-rising just jumps out and almost slaps us in the face. So I think we can lay these principles alongside our own life and kind of use it as a standard to see just how much of this Self-seeking desire is still controlling my life as a believer. So let's look at it. Number one, what's the Bible have to say about this? Well, the first thing the Bible would say is a self-seeking disciple is usually distracted during preaching about the cross. Now, did this jump out to you when I read this passage? Get this. Here are some heavy Heavy verses. Jesus has prophesied, or not prophesied, He has predicted already in the past three chapters, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, every one of those chapters, He gave a, a prediction of His death as He was on the road to Jerusalem. This is the most detailed as He gives us a, a, an eightfold description of what's going to happen to Him when He gets to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, He is already under the shadow of the cross and under the weight of the cross. Did you pick this up? Notice what the Bible says. Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. There was something about his demeanor. He was already feeling the weight and the Garden of Gethsemane experience for him probably starts right here on this road to Jerusalem. They can just tell by his gait. They can tell by the way his face is already set toward Jerusalem that something's going on that's bigger than they are and it causes amazement without him saying a word. Every other time that word amazed is used, it's in relation to something that he has said. And this time it's just in something that he's done. He's off by himself in front of the pack walking with his face set toward Jerusalem, the disciples are amazed and the people who are just in the crowd are scared. They know something heavy is ahead of them. And here on the heels of that, Jesus senses that folk are a little bit timid. They're a little bit shy. They don't understand what's going on. So he pulls the 12 aside again and this is what he says to them. This is what's going to happen. This is where we're going just want y'all to be prepared. Don't be blindsided. I'm going to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to condemn me and hand me over to the Gentiles. They are going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to scourge me, that is, whip me. They're going to kill me. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. Very next sentence, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to jesus saying teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you does that stick out to you as not fitting now here's what i'm saying to you here's how you can tell if you're a self-seeking disciple because a self-seeking disciple is usually distracted during preaching about the cross you see they were they were distracted they didn't get it now here's Let me give you real quickly three characteristics of somebody who is distracted during preaching. I'm not necessarily talking about your mind wandering during a message, because hey, sometimes you can fake attention. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'll never forget when I was uh, when I was in seminary. We had one of the we had a world class theologian come, and he did a theological fellowship. For professors and Ph.D. students at that time, I was in my master's studies, and uh, our philosophy professor said, if any of you will go to this theological fellowship, I'll give you some bonus points at the end of the semester. Well, God knows I need help in philosophy, you know? So I thought I'll go. So me and one of my buddies said, let's go to this theological fellowship. So we went in there with Dr. Alistair McGrath and all these Ph.D. students. And they got to talking about stuff, and my buddy leaned over and listened to me. He said, Did you hear the question that dude just asked? I said, I did hear it. He said, What does it mean? Did you understand it? I said, I don't understand the thing. He said, We ain't got a chance at understanding the response, do we? I said, No, we're not going to understand the thing. He said, Tell you what, we're up here pretty close. He said, Just nod every now and then, act like you get it. So, you know, I understand that you can fake attention, (laughs) but there's some things you can't fake. (laughs) And here's what happens. Here's how you know if you've been distracted during preaching about the cross. Because number one, you will lack sensitivity to other people. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily here at church. I'm talking about Monday morning. You see, what Jesus was doing here was preaching the gospel. And these old boys, they missed it so bad until right after he got through They come up to him and ask for something that's totally selfish. I mean, here's what Jesus needed at that time. He needed needed somebody who was going to be a life giver rather than a life taker. You know, there's only two types of people basically in the world. you got your life takers, those who are always dragging you down and wanting something and pulling on you like puppies pull on a mama dog. But then you've got these life givers who are coming along and helping you accomplish your mission and and keeping you encouraged and and, and focused. He needed somebody to do that at this time. And these guys are so insensitive, they were so distracted during preaching about the cross until they go up and make a foolish, selfish request. So number one, a self-seeking disciple is distracted during the cross. You can tell that because they have a lack of sensitivity. Number two, they have a lack of any sense of timing. Boys, now's not the time. You, you, know, you know anybody like that? That they just don't understand when to say something and when to be quiet? These guys just totally miss that because there's some things the gospel will put into you. It'll put sensitivity. It'll put, it'll put self-awareness It'll give you a a, a good sense of time and and a grip on things around you. And these guys had not been paying attention. It's been preached twice to them in the past several days, and they've been distracted and they've totally missed it. But here's probably the most obvious. Somebody who's distracted during preaching about the cross, they will lack sensitivity, they'll lack a sense of timing, and they they, they lack consistent living with the gospel. Now check this out. Jesus was trying to prepare those boys for what was going to happen to them in the next day or two. Think what would have happened. How different would it have been for them had they gotten it? How different would it have been for them if they would have heard the preaching about the cross? And if they would have went on and stayed with Him as He said, And on the third day I'm going to rise again. Think if they would have just applied the truth that they heard. And you know, here's what what I get sometimes. Man, I want to tell you, God doesn't waste words. Did you know that? He doesn't waste words. And can I just say that if you're here on any given Sunday, the good God of heaven is trying to put a life-giving message in your soul that's going to help you if you'll apply it on Monday morning. And I can't tell you how many times this happens to me as a preacher. Man, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll preach something on on Sunday, and there will be two or three or four people that week go through the very thing that I just preached about. And then they'll call me, and they'll say, Now, here's how I responded, and it's just the opposite of what the Bible says. And I want to say to you, Were you even alive Sunday morning? Because it's amazing how folk can sit in church on Sunday and go out Monday and live like they are blindsided by the world and don't know how to respond to these things. And that's exactly what happened to these old boys because they were distracted during the message. Now, here's why folk are distracted during preaching about the cross. You know why? Because preaching about the cross will kill a self-seeking spirit within you. And if you're not willing to surrender what you want to what he wants, I can promise you you're not interested in what the preacher has to say on Sunday. You'll check out. Because here's the deal. You can't pay attention to the gospel and continue to seek your own way of life. You can't. You know, there's some things that just won't grow in the climate of the cross. Do you know that? Just will not. Uh, Heather and I, in our backyard in Brazil, we've got about, I don't know, about seven tropical fruit trees. Man, I love the fruit we get off of those things. But you know, those fruit trees that we have in Brazil, they won't grow in this climate in North Florida. They won't grow in Alabama. You know why? Because this is not their environment. And can I say to you that selfishness and sin will not grow in the climate of the cross. It cannot. And the reason people are so distracted during preaching about the cross, quite quite honestly, is because they had rather let their sin grow than they had embraced the cross. So here we have some self-seeking disciples Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says they were distracted. They totally missed it. I'm reminded of what a preacher said just a few months ago. This is what he said. He said, you had better listen to the Word of God like your life depends on it. Because it does. And you better share the Word of God like everybody else's life depends on it. Because it does. You see, that's just how important this is. And why is it that preaching is one of the hardest things for folk to stay tuned into? i tell you why. Because the devil knows if he can keep you distracted, he can keep you defeated. Notice what the Bible says. A self-seeking disciple is usually distracted during preaching about the cross. It amazes me how soon... Those guys acted contrary to the gospel. That's why it's so important for us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because if we don't, it won't take us as long as it did them for us to be living off in the land of Nod somewhere. Number two, a self-seeking disciple is usually deceptive in their approach to Christ. Do you notice how these boys came up? And it's almost like a like a, a four-year-old trying to trick his daddy into giving them something that they want that they know he really ain't gonna give them, isn't it? I mean, stop and think about this. Notice what they did. They they came up and they say, they they said this, teacher, will you do for us whatever you ask? Here's how it goes in in our time. Will you do? Do you do me a favor? Keep talking, <laughs> and I'll answer your question but I'm not going to answer that question until you give me more information. But that's what these boys did. Hey, Matthew tells us they even put their mama up to voice in the question for them, which is even more deceptive because now they're trying to put, bring mama in the mix and get mama to do their dirty work. It really doesn't matter who asked the question, and there is no conflict here between these two gospel writers because Jesus is responding to those boys. If it, mama asks. Jesus just swept her side and said, I know where this came from. Hmm? And he said, let me talk to you boys for a minute. They were deceptive. And boy, I want to tell you, I hear a lot of that. I heard, a, I heard a preacher give a testimony not long ago, and here's what he said. He said, when I was 11 years old, he said, I gave my heart to Christ. He said, you know why I gave my heart to Christ? Because I wanted to go to heaven to see my granddaddy. I didn't have any inkling of becoming a follower of Christ. But I just wanted to spend eternity with my granddaddy. And he said, I I realize that was deceptive on my part. You know, there are folks they think they can trick Christ out of his shoes. It's crazy, isn't it? But you can't deceive him. He sees right through it. The only person you're deceiving is you. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says that these people are usually deceptive in their approach to Christ. You know who that, you know what that is? You know what we call those folks today? We call them hypocrites. They come and they put on a face, but they have no intentions of being a follower of Christ. Check out number 3. A self-seeking disciple is usually divisive among the people of God. Do you know why so many churches split? And why are there so many factions and divisions and fights in churches? Hey, man, let's just stop for a minute. Thank God we don't have that, huh? I mean, I've done that. I've I've been in enough church fights. If I was not in another one for the rest of eternity, it would be fine with me, right? Hey, matter of fact, get this. I'm not going to be in another one. If y'all decide y'all want to fight, I'm done. (laughs) Y'all can stay and duke it out, but I'm gone. (laughs) We ain't going to fight. And here's how you don't fight. You keep living in the climate of the cross. Fights come because of our own lusts that are alive. And when we want our own wants, and I didn't get what I want, and he got what he wants, and yada, yada, yada. My goodness, are we the people of God, or is this romper room? Is what I want to say sometimes. Now, how many of you have no clue what romper room is? <laughs> I guess I, I, I thought about that after I said it. Uh, I, I'll explain it later, but it's just not good, okay? It's, well, there's romper room right in there. Look through them glass doors them glass windows. There's romper room. Notice, there ain't no head sticking up. They may have the workers down on the floor right now. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Divisive. A self-seeking disciple is divisive among the people of God. Hey, that's why there's so much of that going on in church. Because most folk want their way. Not His way. Now check this out. Look how they were divisive. These two go and ask Christ, We want to sit on your right and on your left. In your glory. Hey, there's one thing they had had right. He was headed for glory, right? He is. But you know, it was kind of selfish. It was insensitive. Bad timing. Inconsistent with the gospel message. We could go on and on about this question. But now look after Christ pulls them aside and talks to them, now the other, how many is that leave left? You know I can't do math. Ten, at least ten. Thank you, you mathematicians. (laughs) The other ten get to listening in on what they're talking about. And the other ten, the Bible says, started feeling indignation toward James and John. Now, does anybody want to venture a guess as to why the other ten got mad at them? You better believe it. Because they wanted to sit on the right and left. They just didn't have enough courage to ask for it. Or wasn't stupid enough or insensitive enough or something. And now they feel like, and look, here's the jostling. Here's, what, here's, here's how it went. I bet Peter was the maddest. Because every time something special went down, you know who was in the inner circle, don't you? It was Peter, James, and John. And now all of a sudden, these two make an end run and they cut old Peter out. <laughs> so I bet Peter's pretty mule lipped, huh? <laughs> He's ready to grab him, throat punch him. Do you see how a self-seeking disciple can cause division in a church? All it takes is somebody wanting their way more than his way. And you get two or three people in there, and they all want their way rather than his way, and the stage is set for a church fight. Huh? I talked to a guy the other day, a pastor. He was... Uh, interested in missions this is what he said he said man I wish we could do it right now he said but honestly he said it's probably going to be about five or six years before we can really get involved in missions I said I'm glad you think we got five or six more years I don't know you know if we're going to do anything significant we might get doing it today he said well here's the deal he says um about five or six years ago, no, he said it was a long name. He said, About 15 years ago, we built a new sanctuary, and they stepped back and built one. I don't know, a dozen million or so. And they got it paid off. And he said, We just got it paid off, and I'm wanting to do missions. He said, But there is a group of people in our church that when we built this new sanctuary, they had their hearts set on having a gymnasium. And he said, if I don't build them a gymnasium, I'm done. I don't even need to comment on that, do I? Scrapped a plan for the gym, John. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's personal preference. That's what. I, that's self-seeking. Ain't no doubt. Here we go. Self-seeking disciple. Distracted during preaching about the cross. Deceptive in their approach to Christ. Divisive among the people of God. Number four, self-seeking disciple is usually disappointed in prayer. I mean, isn't this a picture of prayer? Here these old boys went to Christ with a petition. They were wanting something from Him. Isn't that isn't that basically prayer it is for us today isn't it we go to him wanting something but they did not get it you ever been there man I'm telling you well why were they disappointed in prayer why do they have an unfruitful prayer life well James another James not this James answers that question in his epistle And he says this, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. And he says, here's why you ask amiss, because you're just wanting to receive so you can consume it on your own lust. You ever been there? Man, I've been there. You don't know how many times i prayed for a new John Deere tractor. (laughs) Trying to be deceptive with Christ, saying, God, you give me that new John Deere tractor, I'll plow the garden for all these little widow ladies around here. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Disappointed in prayer is a self-seeking disciple. Why? Because we're seeking what we want rather than what he wants. It's the enemy to our spirituality. Well, I'm running right on along. The nursery workers paid me to get through early today. A self-seeking disciple is always directed to a proper understanding notice what Christ does you know Christ doesn't let folk just continue to go down the wrong road and here he took those boys and he took them off to the side and he began to teach them some things he began to direct them towards a more proper understanding of a couple of things number one of what true glory is you see they were wanting to sit at his right and left In the kingdom, they were looking for prestige. But Christ says, Boys, true glory has nothing to do with prestige. It has everything to do with persecution. He says, Are you able to drink this cup? What cup was he talking about? It was that cup that he mentioned several times. And he talked about it in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And you see, the gospel writers, especially the gospel of John, they present the apex of Christ's glory as the cross. You see, glory in Christianity has little to do with sitting on a comfortable throne. It has more to do with an old cross by which we crucify self and die daily and put our lust and affections in the ground. So He directed them to what a true understanding of, of, of glory is. And He also directed them to an understanding of what true greatness is. Notice what He does. What He says... He says, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But, strong contrast, it is not this way among you, among the people of God. Man, authority, authority, authority. Power just makes folks drunk, does it not? And Christ says it's not to be this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And then verse 45, let me save it for just a minute. What is true greatness? Well, true greatness number one is suffering for the will of God. Suffering for the will of God. You know, Christianity has always been, is designed to be, a briar patch type of faith Do you know where we thrive we thrive in the tough times that's where we thrive you know what another enemy of spirituality is is affluence and comfort I was finishing up teaching a two-week theology class in the jungle of Brazil about six years ago and those classes are structured in such a way as to kill the professor namely me we go for about three hours from five to eight o'clock we stop and take a break and then we go for another two hours and those guys are sitting there saying pastor Richie can we just not have a break tonight and I'm saying no <laughs> pastor Richie's got to have a break after three hours of teaching High theology in Portuguese, i got to have a break. So here's what I'd normally do. I'd normally try to slip out a door. Heather would meet me out there with a big old cold bottle of water and a pack of cheese nabs or something. She got at a little comesio across the street. And I would want to sit and drink that water and not have to talk to anybody, trying to, trying to grab, grab, grab my thoughts again and let my throat rest and all this type of stuff. And this one night I was out there, and here come one of my students. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he's going to want to talk theology on my break. <laughs> and he did. He came out, and he was, we was doing ecclesiology that night, which is the doctrine of the church. And he comes out, and he says, Pastor Richie, tell me a little bit about your church in the U.S. And I thought, oh, no, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> he says, uh, I said, what do you want to know about it? He said, Quantus Membros say Seistain. How many members do you all have? And I thought, oh, boy, this is going down the wrong road. I said, well, I think we've got about 1,400 members. He was blown away. He said, 1,400 members? I said, yep. He said, Pastor, he said, where do 1,400 people sit on Sunday? You see the way we're going? This boy is innocent as the driven snow. He's unpolluted, and I'm about to pollute him. I said, well, the reality is 1,400 of them don't show up on Sunday. And that kind of took him back a little while. He didn't know what. So his next question I knew was going to push me farther in the corner. I knew what it was. I'm not a prophet, but I know where this is going. So, Pastor Richie, how many of them show up on Sunday? I said about 250, 300. And that just totally knocked him off his rocker. And he couldn't make that work in his Brazilian mind. He said, wait a minute. You've got 1,400 members, but on Sunday there's just 250 of them show up? And I said, yeah, that's right. He said, Pastor, what's wrong? And I said, that's a good question, my friend. Fast forward ahead another year. As long as I've worked in Brazil, I've only been able to visa one One, I've been able to visa with the United States consulate to get them to the U.S. One. And I brought one over here, and he is one of the best worship leaders I've met anywhere on this planet. The old boy can do it. And he is one in, no joke, 100,000, theologically. And on top of that, he speaks English. So he came over here, and he and I did a couple of... uh, A couple of... uh, on the road preaching things. He would lead worship and I would preach. And after about the third third service we were in, he pulled me aside with that perplexed look on his face. He said, Brother, he said, I've only been here about two weeks. He said, but I see what the problem is with the U.S. church. I said, enlighten me. He said, the problem over here is being affiliated with a church and naming the name of Christ." cost y'all nothing. He said, but where we're from, if we're affiliated with the church, it costs us sometimes everything. I can't tell you how many Quilombolas Heather and I have had to take in because when they have been converted, they come home and their little bit of stuff they got is locked outside the front door and they have nowhere to go. And yet, here we are in the U.S. fighting over what color the carpet ought to be. You see, true greatness is found in somebody's ability and willingness to suffer for the will of God. And by golly, we don't know anything about that in the United States of America. It's killing us. Look, I don't know if persecution is that bad of a thing after all. If it would cause us to be who God's created us to be, then by golly, let's roll up our sleeves and get down to the big boy side of our walk with Christ. Amen? Notice what else. True greatness is found, Jesus said, in suffering for the will of God. But Jesus also said true greatness is found in serving the people of God. Check it out. Verses 42 and 43. He says, It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave." That's a common household slave of everybody. And yet we have the audacity to get offended when we think somebody didn't treat us like we deserve to be treated. Hey man, we're just common household slaves of one another. Serving one another. Check out number next. Not only is true greatness found in suffering for the will of God, Not only is it found in serving the people of God. Man, can I just stop right there for a minute? Your leaders are involved in this discussion right now. And y'all can pray about it with us. Whether y'all know it or not, we have hit a glass ceiling in church growth. We popped up to about 120, and that's it. We can't get through it. And here's the reason, part of the reason why we can't get through it. We have stopped growing and producing servants. Until we start producing more servants who are willing to put their hand to the plow. Serve in romper room. Help out with other things. We can't grow no more. We have maxed our workers out. And if we grow any more, hey, it's the mercy of God keeping us from going above 120. You know why? Because if we don't produce some more servants, if we grow above 120, we're going to implode and kill the folks we've got. Jesus said, true greatness is found in serving the people of God. And finally, I gave you this answer. True greatness is found in sacrificing like the Son of God. Look what He said. Here's the key verse in the book of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come. Do you see that word come? Underline it. Oh, it's unique. It's pregnant with theological meaning. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say the Son of Man was born. This word come, here's what it means in verse number 45. Here's what it means. It means to to arrive at one place having left another place. Here is one of the strongest indications in the Gospel of Mark of the deity and the pre-existence of Christ. Friend, Christ didn't come on the scene in Bethlehem. He's always been here. There never was a time when He was not. The only thing He did at Bethlehem is come to this sin-stricken fallen planet. Here's what this word means. This word means He stepped from one realm into the other. It means he stepped from the eternal realm in perfect fellowship with the triune God. He stepped from that into this space-time existence and took upon himself the form of a servant. Wow. And notice what else he said he did. He said, this is why I did that. This is why I made that journey. This is why I came from eternity into time. This is why I came from heaven to earth. I came not to be served... But to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. You see that word ransom? Here's what it means. It means a payment that you could not make for yourself. You were sold on the slave market to sin. There was nobody who could get you out of it. But Christ came and He paid the price on Calvary's cross reminds me of this story i read about a little girl in the slave days of slave trade she was on an auction block and she was a she, she was young she was gorgeous and as she was on that auction block the bids kept going higher and higher and higher and higher and the higher the bids got the more scared she became she was terrified and the bid went through the roof a man paid an astronomical price for her and as she stepped down off of that auction block she was scared to even look at him she think dear god what kind of perverted purpose does a man have in paying that kind of money for me and to her surprise she walked up to that man and that man reached in his pocket pulled out an envelope and said honey here's your emancipation papers I just bought you, and you are free. And as she tried to gather herself together and compose herself to give an answer, here's what she said. She said, No, sir. Anybody who's willing to pay such a high price for me, I'll serve him the rest of my life. Man, what a picture of what Christ has done for us. You know how valuable you are? You're you're so valuable that the Son of God left heaven, came to earth, and He paid your ransom with His blood on Calvary's cross in Jesus' name. Get after that true greatness by serving Him with everything you have for the rest of your life. And you'll never regret it. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for taking a bunch of selfish people like us and directing us to what true glory and true greatness is. And God, would you?